Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It wasn't every day that a convoy of cars turned onto Keaty Drive a quiet street in suburban Baton Rouge, Louisiana, a neighborhood sandwiched between a country club and a highway, with manicured lawns and lots of retirees. The cavalcade stopped in front of the house with the unkempt lawn. The grass was full of mosquitoes. It came up to your knees. The house with all of the cats I believe there were about 20 cats on the inside of that house. And that the neighbors said looked haunted. If you remember the old Munsters TV show, it looks like that house. Well, that house belonged to senior citizens William and Beryl Toy, two neighborhood eccentrics who mainly kept to themselves. We showed up. It was sometime early in the morning. It was daylight. Randy Deaton was the lead FBI agent on the case. I think I was the one that actually knocked on the toy's door. Mrs. Toy was the first person, the first occupant of the house to come to the door. I introduced myself, told her we have a search warrant to search the house. Where's Mr. Toy? And I remember her turning around and, and, and calling up the stairs, Bill, Bill. I remember her calling him Bill. This wasn't the first time authorities had come knocking on William Toy's door. Forty years earlier, William Toy was caught red-handed for this exact same crime, forging the works of one of Louisiana's most famous painters, Clementine Hunter, the prolific, self-taught artist who picked up a paintbrush in her 50s and has since become a part of America's visual canon. William Toy was charged but never convicted back then. Would this time be any different? Would this knock at the door finally rid Clementine Hunter of at least one of the many people who leached off of her talent? Hi, I'm Ben Lewis. Welcome to Art Bust, Scandalous Stories of the Art World. I've been writing and making films about art for over 20 years. The art world isn't just high culture, big money and creative genius. In this series, we uncover the ugliest crimes, the biggest scandals and the murky in between. And today's story? Well, it's about theft 
of identity as much as it is about art, about a black artist and the white man who profited off her work. Both equally compelling characters, though for very different reasons. William Toy, a talented art forger and con man who could wriggle his way out of any situation. Even as a novelist, I could not have made the guy up. And the captivating artist he ripped off. I may be prejudiced, but to me, she was the greatest. She still is. Which is where we start this story, with her, the formidable Clementine Hunter. that you've had an opportunity to go to Washington for a Mardi Gras ball and someone promised you that you could see the meet the president if you went there. Did you go? No, I didn't. Well, how did you answer that? A rare recorded interview with Clementine Hunter from 1979 for Harvard University's Black Women Oral History Project. They're talking about an invitation Clementine received to meet President Jimmy Carter. Well, the, the way I answer that question, if the president wants to see me, he would have to come here to my house because I don't go nowhere. And you meant that. And I meant that and I didn't go. Well, you sound like a very independent lady. How do you Clementine Hunter seemed like a gutsy person, but it's hard to separate fact from fiction about her life partly because, as an illiterate black woman in the segregated South, she wasn't necessarily in control of what people would write about her. What we do know for certain is that she lived far from the elite art world of exhibits and galleries and established dealers. Clementine was born into a Creole family in Louisiana in late 1886 or early 1887 about 20 years after the Civil War and the abolition of slavery in most places. As a young person, Clementine worked in the plantation fields with her family. They were all laborers. She also went to a segregated Catholic school. Accounts vary on how long she stayed, but she never learned to read or write. I didn't learn ABCs. Every time I'd get there, I'd run away. In an interview, she said she'd skip school to escape fights between the kids from the black school and the white school next door, separated by a fence. There's also the story she'd share about bringing contraband pork to school on a Good Friday, a meatless day in the Catholic tradition. Well, I went to school with it in the book and she found it. Who found it? The teacher. What did she do? Took it and threw it away. And what did you do? I told her it wasn't mine. <laughs> she does whip you too much, and I, I wouldn't take that. When you quit school, then what kind of work did you do after you stopped going to school? Pick cotton. For most of her life, Clementine worked at Melrose Plantation in Natchitoches Parish, a rural part of Louisiana first working six days a week in the fields and eventually moving into the so-called big house as a maid and cook. Melrose is also where Clementine built a life for herself. She attended church and community dances, had children and raised a family. 
She was widowed in 1914, but married her second partner about a decade later. How did you meet your husband? Out there on Melrose, to the dance. Was that a Saturday night dance? It was. Saturday night dance. Did you fall in love with him when you first met him? No, not when I first met him. I guess he had to coach you pretty ardently to get you to say yeah, yes. Yeah, because I, that's right. <laughs> Painting didn't enter Clementine's life until she was 53. By the 1930s, Melrose Plantation had morphed into an artist colony and a creative hub. The owner, an art-loving socialite, invited creators from all over the country to visit. The woman who owned it had, had buildings over there and cottages. Tom Whitehead is a longtime friend of Clementine Hunter and would become a go-to source about her life and paintings. Our early female artist in New Orleans was Alberta Kinsey. And Clementine cleaned her cottage. And the story goes that Alberta, when she was cleaning one day, Alberta had put some discarded paint in a garbage can. And Clementine said, can I have that paint? And Alberta said, yes. Well, I don't start with a little piece of cardboard, just any kind of old paper. That's the way I start. Clementine would put in a full day's work at Melrose, come home and care for her family, including her bedridden husband. And at night, by the light of a lantern, she would paint. The mainly white community of artists and intelligentsia at Melrose Plantation saw her talent and supported her by buying her supplies. They had the financial access, art connections and racial privilege to open doors for her. They also influenced who became early fans of her work. Clementine went on to become a prolific painter and an important figure in documenting a particular slice of 20th century black southern life in the Cane River Valley. By the time she was in her 70s, her art was shown in galleries across the country. Today, her paintings sell for anywhere between $500 and $20,000. Her auction record, however, currently stands at $70,150, the price paid in 2018 by the Museum of Fine Arts Boston for one of her works. How do you decide what to paint there? I don't know. It just gets in my mind. Well, does it stay in? Does it come on all at once? No, yes, at night, like sometimes daytime when I get to painting. Sometimes it don't come on till I be on a painter. Clementine Hunter was compelled, I would say she was compelled to create. Teliza Fleming is the curator of American art at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. She put together an exhibit on Clementine at the Smithsonian in 2018. She didn't start painting until she was 53 years old and painted thousands and thousands of paintings on anything she can get her hands on. She covered lampshades, bottles, you name it. Her pictures show her everyday world, cotton and pecan picking, hanging up the washing, late nights at the juke joint. She painted baptisms, weddings, funerals, religious processions, revivals, angels. All with the determined flatness of Egyptian hieroglyphics, which, if you can imagine for a moment, give Clementine the chance to show her flair for color. Blocks, patches and swirls of emerald green leaves, sunset pink fields, twilight purple skies, punchy red aprons, 
all turn her pictures into intoxicating feasts for the eyes, equal to those of any abstract artist exhibited at the MoMA. For her, everyday life was monumental. And it is not unusual for artists to create scenes of everyday life, we call them genre paintings, but perhaps her subject matter, particularly from the point of view of an African-American, often you see genre paintings created by white American artists. Sometimes they have very stereotypical undertones, but to have a woman artist painting this from an interior point of view is, I think, really interesting and quite important. From her small remote cabin, Clementine challenged stereotypes, including her portrayal of Jesus as a black man. And I think that is one of the most important things that she did because it's one of the earliest images that you see of Black Christ in American art, which again is a very unusual thing for an artist to see Christ as Black or paint Christ as Black. But she was a very self-assured woman. And when asked about it, she says, she didn't have any doubt that Christ was a black man. She also didn't have any doubt about the significance of black women. She generally painted women bigger than men because she saw them as more important in terms of community life on the plantation. They were sort of the backbone of what was going on, at least in her world, in terms of work, in terms of leisure, in terms of her own interpersonal relationships. Clementine was considered a curiosity because she was self-taught. There's always been a hierarchy in art. People who are self-taught weren't considered as important as people who uh, were trained in universities and academies and overseas. Her work was described as simplistic, quote-unquote primitive, and childlike. Clementine Hunter is what art historians often call an outsider artist or a folk artist. But I find all of these labels ridiculous. Primitive, in particular. That racist term invented largely by white men so they could look down on a lot of wonderful art. And childlike? I will tell you honestly that I've never looked at her work and childlike has come to mind. I think she's a very mature artist, and her artwork reflects that, which is indicative of why people celebrate her as an artist. Talisa Fleming describes Clementine's art as evoking a confidence you might expect from a seasoned painter, as does what Clementine decided to paint. Often, when you think about plantations in popular culture, you're really looking at Really, the people who owned the plantation, the white people who lived on that plantation, and African Americans are an afterthought or sometimes played as comic relief in popular culture. And what we see with her work, particularly um, seeing this in the early to mid-20th century, is that she brings humanity to these people who lived and worked in that community. You get a feeling of what it may have been like to live and work on that plantation, not in the most brutal sense, of course, but this idea of community, this idea that you can relate to going to church and doing laundry and doing your chores and having fun with your friends. What would you say has been a great influence in your life? Would you say your painting, your friends, or the church, or 
your parents, or, or just what? What made you Clementine Hunter that you are? Well, the church and the people, my people. I got that feeling for my people and I prayed for them. And I'm praying for them till yet. I'm trying to make heaven my home. I'm Kareem Maddox, and I've been playing basketball since I was four years old. This year, I'm training for the Tokyo Olympics and wondering what it means to be an Olympian. We didn't want to be used as some sort of political tool. And what the Olympics mean to all of us. If one of us can win a gold, then it will mean a lot to the people all over the world. Because the Olympics have always been about more than just sports. I do think that I achieved my greatness here. Subscribe to The Greatness with Kareem Maddox. That's me. Produced by USG Audio and Transmitter Media. Do you paint for fun? If you if you didn't get any money for it, you'd paint anyway, I guess. I'd paint right on. I just paint it and give them away. I just give the pictures away. I never try to sell them. Clementine did eventually start to get money for her work. We don't know the exact date, but in the 40s, she hung a sign on her cabin door that read, Clementine Hunter, artist, 25 cents a look. I'd sell them for 25 cents. The highest one was 50. Her paintings were also hanging on the walls of the local drugstore on sale for a dollar. And whatever money she did gain from her paintings, she used it to the betterment of her family. Sharon Banks is Clementine's great-granddaughter. It was therapeutic for her. It was something that she enjoyed doing, and it made her happy. So she was always painting. She always smelled like paint and snuff. Sharon would visit Clementine with her mum, Clementine's granddaughter, Willie Mae Jefferson. But she was always dressed when she was painting. She'd have on those pretty house coats with an apron around them, and she'd have her little jewelry on earrings and everything. She was um, very dainty. In 1944, Clementine was widowed for the second time. After 20 years of marriage, her husband, Emmanuel Hunter, died. Did you find it hard to be a widow after having been a married woman? Was it uh, hard for you to make a living for yourself and your children? Well, not too hard. Just went on to work. Mm. I know I had to work for a living by myself then. And I just went on to work. Well, how did you keep the other fellows from wanting to marry and coming around? Well, because I just tell them no. Just tell them no. It's just that simple. That's right. Word continued to spread locally, especially among middle-class white Louisianans, about an unlikely artist in Cane River who'd paint on her cabin porch with a canvas in her lap. Her Melrose supporters would sing her praises, publish articles about her, and arrange viewings of her work in private homes and garden clubs. White customers would come visit her at her home. And it was, uh, you know, just entertaining us as kids, seeing people coming there and uh, begging and, you know, on the uh, crying and just following her all over the house. Please, can you paint on this for me and they'll take it before it's even dry. They were very popular. Willie Mae Jefferson is Clementine Hunter's granddaughter. 
She couldn't hardly paint enough. Somebody was buying it. Despite the fact that Clementine's paintings were hanging in the homes of white people, she couldn't eat at the same lunch counter. She couldn't bank at the same financial institution or bathe in the same swimming pool as her buyers. In 1955, Clementine had a solo exhibition at Northwestern State University in Louisiana. An early supporter of her work was the dean of the graduate school. I can't really express how unusual that was for her to be a Black artist and be exhibited in majority white institutions. Smithsonian curator Tulisa Fleming. Particularly many of them during the era of segregation. Despite being lauded enough to have an exhibition, the university had a policy of no Black people as guests or students. I think that 1955, her not being able to go to her own solo exhibition because of segregation, or not being able to go to any museum because of segregation, is disheartening. Um, And I can't imagine what kind of artist or how her work would have changed or been expanded or how she would have thought about art had she had those opportunities. So I think that really speaks to her, right? That she was denied those opportunities, yet still became a wonderful, accomplished artist in her own right. Tom Whitehead wasn't there at the time, but he told us that two of Clementine's early supporters, white people with connections at the university, arranged to get her in. Clementine would walk around and look at the paintings and just, you know, surprised that her paintings were hanging there. It it was quite an emotional experience for her to see in a gallery the first time Clementine saw her work exhibited. Tom Whitehead met Clementine in the 1960s. He was a university student studying political science and went with his professor to visit her in the countryside at her cabin home on Melrose Plantation. When I went to see Clementine Hunter, she was actually sitting in the front yard painting a picture. And we sort of bonded in a way, and we became friends. She would call me later in life her white son. When Tom and Clementine met, she'd already been profiled in several national publications, including in Look magazine. I recognized creativity that afternoon. She was such a small person, kind of quiet person, but yet these paintings were dramatic in the color and the design. By the 70s, Melrose Plantation was sold and Clementine had to leave the home she'd known for most of her life. With the money she'd made from her art, Clementine bought her own place, a trailer, and parked it down the road from where the plantation stood. As her fame grew, her home became an unofficial tourist attraction. Across the country and around the world, a growing number of people began to admire and respect her work. She was profiled in Reader's Digest. Major galleries in the US, in LA and New York, showed her work. And of course, there was that invite to meet President Carter. He couldn't build a Southern art collection without including a Hunter original. But Clementine was still Clementine. We were sitting in the front yard talking one afternoon, and this car stops. 
And this man sticks his head out the window and asks, do you know where Clementine Hunter lives? And Clementine looked at him and said, just up the road a piece, you'll see it. And that was her telling him to go somewhere else. Unfortunately, fame didn't protect Clementine Hunter from unscrupulous strangers. If anything, it made her a target. But I know of some instances where she didn't get what she asked for because she couldn't count. Willie May, Clementine's granddaughter, remembers one incident around Christmas where Clementine sold a painting for $500 and received a check payment. So I asked her, and I said, Mama, you know what this is? She said, yeah. I said, what's she that's $500. I said, oh, no, ma'am. I said, it's $50. Willie May tried to push Clementine to get her painting back. But that's when she would say, they got to give him count to their God, and I'll give him count to mine. She didn't pursue it, and we didn't press her. I hate to say it, but a lot of uh, my um, people were illiterate to things like that. We didn't know anything about... Um, art galleries and art paintings and different uh, artists that were famous and how much their paintings were worth. We didn't know anything about that. And people came and they wanted her paintings because they were pretty. They were unusual. They uh, were different from other paintings. And so, you know, we were like, okay, she painted something different and people liked it. Sharon Banks, Clementine Hunter's great-granddaughter, thinks Clementine was also preyed upon in an even more insidious way by some of the buyers who sought out her work, those who were wiser to the ways of the art market. They were um, so adamant about not leaving without a painting because they knew the value that it would be once um, she was dead. They knew what they would have. You know, so, but we didn't, we, she was just our grandmother, somebody we loved. And she herself didn't see how big she was going to be in life, but they knew and they used it to her, their advantage. Well, I'll tell you this, she told me that, say, well, if y'all think they taking advantage of me, I'm taking advantage of them because they giving me what I asked for. You know, and I'm giving them what they want. So she was satisfied. So I didn't like the fact that she was taking advantage of a lot, but if she was all right with it, I could live with it too. The attention Clementine got didn't necessarily translate into big bucks. By the early 1970s, her work sold for a few hundred dollars, definitely a long way from 25 cents. But according to her family, Clementine still relied on her old age pension. She was in her late 80s then. Her popularity, combined with the relatively low prices of her paintings, made her low-hanging fruit for forgers. People were less likely to call the police and law enforcement was less likely to chase down a case involving a few hundred bucks. She also lived far from the art world of authentication. And she painted a lot of works that no one was keeping track of. Thousands by this time. Tom Whitehead says that low-quality fakes started popping up all over Louisiana. He'd go to a gas station or a local fair 
and see a bad fake hanging next to an original. Oh, that was a real mess out there. But the game changed on March the 28th, 1974. So I realized then that it was more than people selling paintings on the side of the road in Natchez, Louisiana. There was a bigger operation going on forging Clementine. It was that day in March that Clementine Hunter and Tom Whitehead first learned the name William Toy. There was a story in the Times-Picayune newspaper, that was a major paper in New Orleans, on the front page of two detectives holding up four or five Clementine paintings. The two detectives are smiling in the picture. The night before, they arrived at a dingy apartment in downtown New Orleans, undercover as potential customers, and seized 22 Clementine Hunter fakes. It was a very famous arrest. Police acted on three months' worth of intel that a man in New Orleans was selling fake Clementine Hunter paintings to local dealers. William Toy would place ads in a local New Orleans newspaper advertising the sale of never-before-seen paintings by Louisiana darling Clementine Hunter. Randy Deaton, the lead FBI agent who knocked on William Toy's door in 2009, told us that William was caught red-handed back then. But apparently, the two undercover detectives posing as buyers saw him moving a fresh Clementine Hunter fake from his easel into the oven. It's a common technique forgers use to speed up the process of slow-drying oil paints. The heat also cracks the paint, giving it an older appearance. After this first raid on the toy home, police reached out to Clementine, who was a few years shy of 90 years old. They went to see her. According to Randy Deaton, the police lined up 23 paintings, one beside the other, and asked her to take a look. 22 of them were fake. One was an original Clementine Hunter artwork. She looked at him real, real carefully, and she said, I didn't paint this. Who's painting my picture? Something to that effect. The fakes were good, but Clementine easily picked out the one original. She never understood why people wanted to paint her pictures. I, I remember that line over and over. Why do people want to paint my pictures? William Toy was charged after that bust in the 1970s, but he was never prosecuted. Was it because of the relatively low cost of the art? The artist's race as a black woman. No one we asked could give us a definitive answer as to why. Forty years later, authorities knocked on William Toy's door again. We have a search warrant to search the house. Where's Mr. Toy? And that knock was heavy with history. Not just because William Toy got away with passing off Clementine Hunter fakes for decades, but because Toy represented what went on for hundreds of years before him. White people benefiting from the creativity and work of black artists. Next on Art Bust, scandalous stories of the art world. The conclusion to the story of artist Clementine Hunter and her forger, William Toy. Will justice finally catch up with William? And who was this master forger anyway? He was a force of nature and not a good one. 
he was Hurricane Toy, and um, he just swept through our little part of the world and, and, and wreaked havoc, and, and he hurt a lot of people. This episode was produced by Alexis Green and myself. Our senior producer is Debbie Pacheco. Mix and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Consulting by Nanaba Duncan. Our executive producers are Kathleen Goldhar, Katrina Onstad, Stuart Cox, and Jago Lee. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. I'm your host, Ben Lewis. Special thanks to the Schlesinger Library, Radcliffe Institute, and the President and Fellows of Harvard College for the use of their interview with Clementine Hunter. This is an Antica Productions podcast in collaboration with USG Audio. For more information, go to usgaudio.com. Thank you.